Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Michelle, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Liver Cancer Treatment Updates. That's a very important program today, and you're going to be hearing a lot about the updates. It's really, a, um, I think you're going to hear a lot of news that you may not have been aware of before, good, good news, actually. And today's program is supported by ISI, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today and for their support of many of our programs. And I also want to let you know there's over 153 participants on this call today. You are primarily from the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Australia, India, Kenya, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So it's a really a bit of a global call as well. And now, before we move into my introducing our first speaker, I'm going to ask you all just a few questions. Um, really, um, just to get an idea of what you know coming into this program, it really helps us as we plan future programs. So the first question is, on a, and, those, and this is going to be um, visible to all of you who are live streaming the program. So on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the current standard of care for liver cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand new treatment approaches for liver cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now there are just two more questions. Understand how to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain of liver cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question is, I understand the significance of clinical trials for liver cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in answering these questions. It really helps us uh, as we plan future programs um, so that we um, and understand what you know coming into the program. It's very, very helpful to us. So thank you for those of you who participated in this. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Ahmad Kassab. And Dr. Kassab is Professor and Director Hepatocellular Carcinoma Program, Co-Director MD Anderson HCC Spore, Editor-in-Chief, Journal of Hepatocellular Carcinoma, and Department of Gastrointestinal Medical Oncology, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. 
and Dr. Kassab will be addressing an overview of liver cancer, including diagnosing and staging in the context of COVID-19, causes of liver cancer, new and emerging treatment approaches, including targeted treatments, immunotherapy, regional therapy, chemotherapies, surgery, ablation therapy, and clinical trial updates. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kassab. Thank you, Carolyn. It's always a pleasure to join you, James and Diana. Um, and I have to say to our audience, this is my favorite setting um, where we can all talk directly to our patients and their families and get to know their um, questions and concerns firsthand. It really gives us all uh, new perspectives. So today's uh, topic for me would be um, looking into the overview of liver cancer, um, also talk about causes, how to diagnose it and treated and also allude to new and emerging treatment and some clinical trial updates. So uh, first off, um, what causes liver cancer? So liver cancer, you know, by definition, let me take a step back, is um, tumor that originates and develops in the liver. So they develop in the liver um, at the primary origin and then they could spread to other organs. So tumors that start in lung or um, colon or anywhere else and come to the liver, these are not primary liver cancer. We call them secondary. So now regarding the causes of primary liver cancer that um, originates in the liver itself, up until 10, 15 years ago, the main um, causes were revolving around hepatitis, hepatitis B or C, and also heavy alcohol use. However, in the last 10, 15 years, um, a new entity came up um, to the picture, and actually 50% or more now is not related to hepatitis or alcohol. It is more related to what we call fatty liver non-alcoholic fatty disease or metabolic syndrome. So patients with high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, obesity around the waist or high cholesterol, at the time goes on, they start um, developing a fatty liver and then eventually scarring and cancer. And rarely, uh, some rare entities such as what we call hemochromatosis or increased iron deposition in the liver or some scarring because of biliary cirrhosis, you know, related to the bile ducts, but these are rare entities, less than 5%. Now that we came to know the causes of the liver cancer, we really have to appreciate the fact that in majority of cases, we are up against two diseases in one. So it's a two-disease state. In one hand, we have the liver cancer. On the other hand, we have the underlying liver disease or the scarring that led to cancer in the first place. That's why this really affects everything we do for our patients, starts from, starting from diagnostics. So in general, those patients with known uh, scarring tissue, cirrhosis of the liver, chronic hepatitis, uh, they are always uh, subjected to screening every six months with a liver ultrasound in addition to a blood test called alpha-fetoprotein or AFP, which is the tumor marker that we measure for liver cancer. And uh, eventually, those patients who develop cancer, uh, we start with CAT scan or MRI, and then a question that always comes up, do I need a biopsy? 
So in general, if it is safe, meaning that the uh, patient doesn't have uh, thin blood, too thin, um, uh, or uh, fluid in the abdomen, or jaundice in the eyes, if their liver um, um, cirrhosis is very advanced and it is risky to even entertain the biopsy, we don't do it. However, if it is safe, we always um, also do a biopsy. Now that we came to know the causes, how to diagnose it and uh, screen for it, how about staging systems? So unlike other cancers where we just go by the tumor size and number and whether it is spread to lymph nodes or distant organs in the body, in liver cancer we also stage the underlying liver reserve. Um, so we look at the liver function and there is a staging system for it. It's called CHILD, like CHILD, CHILD PU, P-U-G-H classification. And that one is really critical for us. We really have to make sure that patients have excellent liver condition, what we call CHILD PU class A, meaning that their liver functions are normal or close to normal. Those patients who are class C, meaning that their liver functions are very high, it is very risky to entertain any kind of therapy except for liver transplant if they are candidates for it. How about um, moving on to um, um, treatment approaches here? And um, in general, when we think about liver cancer and um, treatment approaches, we always start with the uh, curative options. So in general, uh, curative options are only possible for patients with small volume uh, tumor, very small tumor load. So for example, in case of surgery, it has to be limited to one lobe of the liver. Um, we can't have any spread outside the liver, and also we shouldn't have any um, major invasion into the portal vein or blood vessels. Um, how about transplant? It's reserved for patients with very advanced cirrhosis, meaning that their liver is scarred. We can't even cut through it to cut the tumor out through a regular surgery. So for that to happen, we really have to have very small tumor load, either one tumor less than 5 centimeters or three less than 3 centimeters, and again, no invasion into the vessels, no spread outside the liver. Okay, so how about patients who are not candidates for either? Then we go for localized therapies if they do have limited disease to their liver. So the number to remember is, again, 3 centimeters. So those small tumors, they could be amenable for ablation or just, you know, destroying them, either by heat, we call it radiofrequency ablation, or by freezing, cryoablation, any other form, ethanol ablation. And those tumors that are beyond 3 centimeters in diameter up to about 7 centimeters, so we can go for catheter treatment, like having a heart cast, but we go to the liver instead of the heart and directly inject treatment inside of the tumor. And if we directly inject chemotherapy, we call it chemoembolization or taste. If we inject radiation spheres, we call it radioembolization or yttrium 90. And those large tumors that are, you know, confined to an area of the liver, they could also go for radiation from outside the body. Now, how about those patients who have tumors beyond local therapy or surgery? or transplant. Then we go for what we call systemic therapy, meaning that it's either by mouth or vein and it goes wherever blood goes to the rest of the body. So of course the known uh, modalities here are either chemotherapy or immunotherapy. Chemotherapy meaning that we um, give some treatment to destroy rapidly dividing cells. But unfortunately, when you do that, you also um, hurt rapidly um, 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 uh, 
metabolizing cells and rapidly, um, um, like hair follicles, for example, or GI um, system, for example. So um, those pati patients could suffer from severe side effects, hair loss and GI um, symptoms and so on. Uh, because of the rapid replication of those active normal cells. However, in liver cancer, we really didn't have any um, major achievements when it came to chemotherapy. Most of those you know, chemotherapy studies failed to show any survival benefit, with the exception of some regimen in China for patients with no cirrhosis. However, the mainstay of treatment when it comes to liver cancer is based on two main categories. One of them is immunotherapy, which is medications we give um, to enhance the immune uh, cells and activate them to attack tumor cells. And the other one is called targeted therapy. So we give certain treatments to attack certain proteins uh, of the cancer cells. We call it targeted therapy. So this is, again, either by mouth or vein. So the uh, most commonly used approach now is the combination of both. So over the past just one year, I was talking to Carolyn before the call, we had major advances in the treatment modalities. Last year, we had uh, mainly just single-agent drugs, either immunotherapy or targeted therapy. However, um, the FDA has approved um, a combination strategy of two drugs. One of them is targeted therapy to attack the blood vessels supplying the tumor. The other one is immunotherapy to unleash immune cells against the tumor itself. So these two drugs became the standard of care in the frontline setting for hepatocellular carcinoma. And both of them are given intravenously once every three weeks, and they are tolerable. So that's the major um, change from last year. The other drugs that we listed last year, either pills or IV, remain the same, single agents. So we do them after this regimen. The major achievement in terms of clinical trial approaches is the fact that we have a lot of combination strategies, either immunotherapy plus immunotherapy. Just two days ago, um, a, a clinical trial, a phase three study, global study, uh, turned out to be positive, and they announced it through a press release. So these two immunotherapy drugs are both given IV, and this is also going to probably be approved down online in the next few months with both drugs, IV as uh, immunotherapy. And of course, there are the same um, kind of combination, combination strategies with targeted therapy and immunotherapy has been under investigation. There are a lot of clinical trials, phase three studies um, ongoing as we speak, and we expect in the next few to several months to um, read out the results very soon, and hopefully they can also add uh, more options to our hepatocellular carcinoma patients. So that's, you know, the hope that we um, uh, wanted to bring to our patients and their family that there uh, is uh, more advances uh, happening now in terms of systemic therapy, combining immunotherapy with targeted therapy and immunotherapy with immunotherapy. And we always tell our patients there is always hope when we try something and if you, your body can handle it well, even you know um, um, better because then we can achieve this um, risk benefit ratio where the treatment is working and treatment is slowing the cancer down and the quality of life is preserved. Um, so uh, before I uh, end my talk, just the last you know half a minute or so regarding um, our um, COVID. Um, uh, patients, you know, the context of COVID in managing hepatocellular carcinoma patients. So uh, we are very lucky that, you know, our patients, most of them, they get uh, 
to follow guidelines in terms of masking and vaccinations and so on. When they get sick, they get sicker than regular population. However, our patients are always very careful about that. Um, so we really didn't have um, any major losses um, during the past couple of years um, uh, during the COVID time, but we're, we're hopeful that it's going to be over soon. Um, it affected a little bit our patients' ability to follow up closely and all of that by in-person visits. However, the televisits are really helping us and uh, teleconferencing and video uh, conferencing uh, to um, provide them with uh, follow-up is really helpful for, for them. Um, so um, I'll stop here and um, I'll turn it uh, back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kassab. That was really outstanding and a wonderful setting the context for today's program with all the new treatments that you mentioned and just um, so everyone knows is on, on target with just all the new things that are available. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. James Harding. And Dr. Harding is assistant um, attending um, gastrointestinal oncology service, Early Drug Development Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Harding will be addressing how research contributes to treatment options, uh, managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, pain, and quality of life, incre the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, a prepared list of questions, follow-up appointments, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Harding. Thank you very much uh, for having me today on this call, and um, thanks uh, to my colleagues for excellent presentations thus far. Uh, so to address the first question of research and its contribution to treatment options, I think if we look um, historically before 2017, um, in the advanced setting for hepatocellular carcinoma, we only had one treatment option, and that was the tyrosine kinase inhibitor, serafinib. Now, as we can see from Dr. Kassab's talk, in 2021, uh, there are many potential treatment options in the advanced setting, uh, and about nine FDA approvals to date for new agents, and as Dr. Kassab said, more studies that have recently shown um, uh, positive results that we await the, the, the final data presentations for. And so this could only happen in the context of clinical trials or clinical investigations. And there are two types of clinical trials. Um, one is what is called a non-therapeutic clinical trial and the other is a therapeutic clinical trial. Non-therapeutic clinical trials are when investigators and scientists are trying to learn about cancer and approach patients um, under um, specific protocols that allow for testing of um, uh, potentially blood samples or tumor samples, um, as well as uh, surveys and questionnaires to understand more about the biology of cancer as well as the patient experience. And in so doing this, we can learn about cancer and potentially develop new treatments for cancers. The second broad type of clinical trial are therapeutic clinical trials. This is where patients are 
uh, enrolled on studies so that we might understand how um, how do we position and how do we assess a new uh, therapy that we've learned about in the laboratory, how do we apply that to people? Um, these types of therapeutic clinical studies are broken into three general categories. Phase one, which is the first time we're testing a new drug in patients, um, and we're trying to understand how safe is it, what's the best schedule, and as a secondary objective, to understand how active it is. A phase two study is when we know that the drug or new treatment may be safe. We just don't understand how active it is yet. And this is where we test a larger number of patients at that specific dose or schedule of a new medication. Um, and then finally, a phase three study, which Dr. Kassab mentioned, is when we take um, that new drug or drug combination and compare it to the current standard of care in the hopes that this may be a better treatment. And this phase three studies usually require randomization, where half of the patients or a subset of patients get one of the drugs and the other get the investigational drug. And it is in the context that all of these new approvals for, for liver cancer came from this sequence of phase one, two, three clinical trials. Um, and so at the present time, across the globe and in the United States, North America, uh, there are innumerable clinical trials that are running for liver cancer. In the advanced setting, in patients that no longer have an opportunity for surgery, regional therapy, or transplant, we're looking at a variety of systemic therapies. Um, and comparing them to uh, what is the drug serafinib, which is the um, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor of that that has demonstrated prior efficacy. Dr. Kassab mentioned a, a press release for the Himalaya study, which was a positive study that looked at comparing patients with liver cancer uh, receiving serafinib um, uh, compared with patients getting single or double agent immunotherapy. Uh, there are other studies that are still pending in this regard. One is called the LEPO2 study. Um, uh, there um, are several others that have been reported um, at a high level in press releases, and we'll hear more about those in the months to come. Um, uh, in addition, with all of these new combination treatments that we're seeing, Several investigators are looking at these at earlier stages of disease, um, and so we are looking at phase two and three studies now that seek to treat patients with regional therapies such as embolization, and we are now adding to that combination immunotherapy or single-agent immunotherapy. We're also looking at several studies that are giving those treatments after a definitive and curative surgery as an adjuvant to help prevent cancer recurrence. Um, there are, I think, too many uh, phase two and three studies to truly list, uh, and that's why each year at this conference, uh, Dr. Kassab really has to update um, tremendously given uh, the amount of, of, of progress that has been seen. Um, and so, um, uh, more on that, I, I think, to come, um, but all of these treatments are tolerable um, and have shown to improve the quality of life of patients, but they do have side effects. 
Um, immunotherapy side effects uh, is waking up the immune system against other parts of the body. Um, and these side effects could be quite mild to, you know, mild itch, joint pain, diarrhea, mild rash, um, or um, uh, other such issues. But in a subset of patients, they can be quite significant, uh, leading to a serious medical problem that requires prompt medical attention. So if you're a patient that is on immunotherapy, it's very important to contact your healthcare provider if you have any symptoms so that it could be assessed for what is called an immune-mediated um, adverse event. Uh, these can be treated effectively by holding the immunotherapy and providing immune suppression like steroids or other medications, uh, but it does require prompt treatment. Um, the other form of drugs that Dr. Kassab mentioned were antiangiogenic, like tyrosine kinase inhibitors um, uh, or antibodies to uh, a protein called VEGF or VEGF receptor 2. These drugs have a different class of effect. They can uh, elevate the blood pressure, cause poor wound healing, um, and a variety of other cardiovascular side effects. Um, so it's important if you're on these medications to follow closely with your oncologist or hepatologist, monitor your blood pressure, and you may need medications to mitigate high blood pressure. Um, these class of medications can also cause rashes um, like immunotherapy, but they're different in nature and treated slightly differently. So this requires really close um, a collaboration with your treatment team. Um, we also see symptoms uh, related to the cancer itself. Uh, patients that have liver cancer and cirrhosis may suffer from subtle or light confusion, and that should be addressed with your primary doctor. Uh, they may develop fluid on the body, like swelling of the cavity of the abdomen or swelling on the legs. This may require um, diuretics or water pills. Um, in addition, um, uh, sometimes patients with cirrhosis may have um, a higher risk of bleeding because of uh, gastroesophageal varices. And it may be required to monitor for this, uh, particularly around the time and before starting certain types of systemic therapy for this disease. Um, and so those, I, I think, are of, of critical import. The goal of all of our treatments, whether it's on uh, standard of care medicine or in the context of a clinical trial is to help maintain and improve quality of life. And that's an important metric for all medical oncologists and hepatologists. It's important that um, you, if you are a patient or a family member, to bring up quality of life. We want our therapies, if we can, to eradicate cancer. If we can't eradicate cancer, we want cancer to be controlled for as long as possible with the highest quality of life. Um, in the current era, um, what we've learned from COVID-19 is that we do have the potential in medicine to have more connectivity, and that is through uh, the role of telehealth. Um, telehealth um, is uh, an important venue where you may be able to see your doctor and speak with your doctor through video link. Um, and uh, real-time audio-visual um, link. I think this is an important modality um, and has been improving over the last 
several months to years now. Um, it's important if you're a patient and are engaging in telehealth to make sure that your audiovisual, um, you know, uh, capabilities are set up and work with your primary oncologist or treatment team's uh, office to have that adequately set up so that there is a good connection and the doctor could evaluate you. Another important thing about telehealth, though, is that it is not always appropriate. And so if you um, are engaging in a telehealth discussion with your provider and the provider feels that you need to be seen, uh, given the complexity of management of patients with liver cancer, its ongoing treatment and cirrhosis, it may be very important to come into the visit and actually be seen. Um, in my patients, I do... Uh, need to see patients before starting treatment uh, in person to get a sense of, you know, who they are, what, how they're functioning, you know, and how best to treat them. Telemedicine can be used in certain circumstances. Um, another aspect of telemedicine is, you know, allowing others to join the appointments. I think it's important to have those patient people on the call um, and, um uh, be ready for the time of the visit. Um, um, and I think it's up to you and your provider about how frequently telemedicine can be employed. Another thing that I've been asked to comment on is the discussion of open notes. You know, there has been a move now to allow patients to have more access to the medical record on the basis that this may improve communication uh, and improve the patient experience. And, and there have been substantial data to show that that is the case. Um, and so you may now have access to all of your imaging, um, your laboratories on various apps, including your physician notes. Um, I, I have had many of my patients have this service and I do find it helpful. If you review your medical record like that, you do have to recognize that there may be some medical jargon or medically, medically, as it has been called, in the electronic medical record. Um, and if you have questions about that, write those down and bring them to your next visit with your provider so that they can help explain what is meant and what is the intention. Um, and so um, I think I have now covered the portions that I am responsible for. I thank you for your time and attention. I look forward to hearing from our other speakers and the question and answer session. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Harding. That was really excellent. And I, I think um, particularly um, the review of all your topics. And I, I think also with the telehealth and telemedicine appointments and the detail about the open notes and also about being able to have another family member present during a visit, which sometimes it wasn't always possible to bring in people from different um, parts of the country or even different parts of the world to be on a call with you who care about you, but you're just, you know, so far away from each other. Um, so thank you so much for that excellent presentation and um, and also for also going through so carefully the treatment side effects and issues that people can be coping with and, and giving people solutions and tips. That's so helpful. So thank you very much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Diana Bearden. And um, Ms. Bearden is an 
oncology dietitian, and she's with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bearden will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. And it's my real pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Um, so nutrition and hydration, oftentimes um, we take them for granted, but they're essential in not only our tolerance to treatment, but our quality of life. Um, during your treatment for liver cancer, your diet might be modified throughout um, your course. And a lot of that will be in response to how you're doing with treatment and your unique needs. So, but some common side effects that you may run into include things like a decreased appetite, maybe you feel a reflux or an indigestion after eating. Um, you might start feeling full quickly um, and notice that you're just not eating as much at a meal as you once did. Nausea um, is a possibility, constipation, diarrhea, and weight loss. So a dietitian is on staff um, where you are getting care, and it's important for you to connect with them. Um, a dietitian can provide information such as the calorie and protein needs um, to help you meet your nutrition goals, as well as your fluid needs. Oftentimes we forget about fluid, but it's very, very important in how we feel and how our body functions. But typically, there's an increased need for protein in patients with liver cancer. And so um, if you're suffering and, and kind of dealing with some of the side effects that I mentioned earlier, it's very important that you do talk with your dietitian and let your healthcare team know that you're having some challenges so they can help modify your diet to um, get you in what you need to have in to get your nutritional needs met. But each person responds differently to treatment, and we know the general side effects from the treatment, but we need you to communicate with us and, and let us know as things are updated and you notice some new changes along the way. Um, the sooner the better. We can help you um, very quickly as soon as we know what you're challenged with. The goal with nutrition is really for you to avoid significant weight loss. And the reason why weight loss is discouraged is because oftentimes when you're going through treatment, it's muscle that you lose rather than fat. And a lot of times I have patients who tell me, oh, I've got weight I can lose. Um, you know, I don't need to worry about it. I've been wanting to lose 20 pounds for the last 10 years. Well, this isn't the right time to do that. And um, what we want to do is maintain your nutrition, nutrition, nutritional status. And by doing that, we want to help maintain your weight and your lean muscle mass. But if you don't get enough nutrition in and you start to lose weight, like I mentioned, it can be the lean muscle mass that you lose. And with losing lean muscle mass, it also results in increased weakness, potentially an increased risk for falls, and a delay in wound healing. So it's very important that we get um, connected with the full health care team as soon as possible. There are medications to help with side effects, and um, please talk with your healthcare team if you are experiencing any of the side effects, anything changing, anything new, um, so they can help address um, those needs as soon as possible. And don't forget, hydration is essential. Dehydration happens in more cases than you'd believe, and the reason for that is oftentimes when the appetite's less, the intake is less, and most people drink when they eat. And so if you're not um, eating as often, you may not be drinking as much. Most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day, and fluid is considered anything liquid at room temperature, things like water, milk, sports drinks, for example. 
But in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to you and helping you through your treatment. So please know your healthcare team, know how to reach them, and reach them sooner than later. Thanks so much. I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Drayton. That was really wonderful and a lot of good tips and things to keep in mind um, and that this is not the time, I think what you're saying very clearly, to lose weight, but to really maintain your muscle mass and your and your weight and um, uh, to and to actually work with a dietitian so that you're sure, an oncology dietitian so that you're sure that you're following all the regimens you need to to stay as um, healthy as possible during your treatments. That's very important. Thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And I'm going to say a few words about um, some important concepts as well. I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education at Cancer Care. And I want to, first of all, address coping with your financial concerns um, with available resources. So there are many available resources um, to get financial assistance. And a lot of people don't think about that. Um, and, don't, and think that there's really nothing out there for them. So I want to mention a few, and then I'm going to also very much suggest that you, of course, contact our, um, our Hope Line because our oncology social workers there can help you a great deal or visit our website And because if you post a question there, one of our staff will, of course, get back to you as well. Um, but there are a number of, of, of resources. One is if any of you on a call are a veteran. Um, and although many people have mixed feelings about um, uh, using, utilizing veterans' resources, they do have a lot of financial assistance programs and help that you might be able to access. So basically, that might be an opportunity to get those resources um, for the, whatever help that you may need. For those of you who have food insecurity or don't have adequate food, there are many food banks throughout the country and resources to get food in your communities and nationally as well. And there are a lot of programs, and our, our staff at Cancer Care can assist with that as well, but there's a lot of financial assistance around that. Also, just in terms of your medical care, now there are a lot of federally mandated programs. Um, there's Medicare for people um, who have... Um, guidelines for Medicare. There also are is something called Medicaid, um, which is um, available to people whose incomes may be fairly low. There also is emergency um, assistance that you can get from your community or from your region. Um, so there are a lot of uh, programs out there, more than you probably are aware of, because if you haven't used them, you wouldn't know they're out there. There's also transportation resources available for you as well. Um, both um, nationally in your community as well as um, as well as actually um, from your very community itself where people ha where hospitals may provide transportation or transportation funds as well. I should say that your healthcare team, of course, is a wonderful resource around any concerns you may have about getting financial help. That's very important because you may not realize that your hospital, some hospitals have a fund to help with, let's say, um, either with issues around food or may have a resource for that that they use in that community or for transportation or for other things you may need, for pain medication, for chemotherapy. There are a lot of resources out there, so I wouldn't assume. Um, I also want to just mention um, something called COVID copay foundations. Um, Cancer Care has a copay foundation, and there are many of them throughout the country, and that means that they will help to pay for some of the costs of your treatment that perhaps your insurance or other coverage does not cover. Medicare may not cover the whole thing. The copay foundation will. And so, um, and also, um, you can work with your healthcare team because if you're taking an, a medication or um, for your treatment of your 
liver cancer and let's say you're you may not have the coverage you need for it um, there are programs out there through the copay foundations are going directly to the company that that actually um, produces the product you need um, for your treatment and they have um, assistance programs as well so there's a lot of assistance out there which you may not know about just because if you haven't needed it before you wouldn't know but your social workers and oncology nurses they spent their careers getting that resources all together for you patient navigators as well in terms of cancer cancer free programs and services um, we have a staff of about 40 oncology social workers and they've they pretty much are there to staff our hope line. That number is 1-800-813-4673. Or again, for those of you who prefer to go to our website, you can go to um, www.cancercare.org and then you can just identify the issue that you need help with. When you call our hope line, um, you there's very rare times that you have to wait for anybody. We assign a number of people to answer the phones when they are ringing so that you basically will get someone pretty quickly um, and can identify what the problem is. Even if you don't know what the problem is, they'll tell you what our services are and which ones do you need. You can take advantage of all the services we need, we have. And so what are those services? Well, first of all, you have a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers for support and guidance. And you also have a chance to join an online support group or access financial assistance or co-payment assistance. We also have a case management service that will help you get those practical things that you need that you're having trouble getting. Um, and that is a terrific service of people who are there. Um, they don't just give you a list of places to call. They actually call with you. They connect with you to the service that you need. Until you get that service, they are um, there with you. They will stay with you until you get your need met. Um, that's, that's their goal in, in terms of, um, of really being sure that you get the service that you need. Um, we also have these type of workshops and publications and, of course, information on our website. So I hope this is helpful to you. And now, before we move on to the Q&A, which is really an important part of this program, we have a few questions to ask you um, before we move on to the q and It'll take about two minutes. And I'm going to start with the first question. And that first question is, and again, for those of you who are live streaming the program, as a result of what I've learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the current standard of care for liver cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and a five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the new treatment approaches for liver cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now we just have two more questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of how to communicate and work with the healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage the symptoms, side effects, discomfort, and pain of liver cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. 
as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of participating in clinical trials for liver cancer as a treatment option. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It helps us to see what you've learned during this program itself, and also um, we can compare that with what you knew coming into the program. It really helps us to see how do we change the programs to be even more helpful to you. That's what, and so your, your answering these questions is incredibly helpful to us as we plan future programs to better meet your needs. That's really what it's all about. So now we're going to move on to the questions um, for our panel of experts. I'm going to ask Michelle to explain to all of you how to queue up and ask questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then the number one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself in the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And um, we have questions from some of our online participants, so I'll start with them. Um, so this is a question um, for Dr. Kassab. Why are some patients not eligible for surgery? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, most of the time, the reason would be either the fact that the tumor has already spread outside the liver or it is invading the majority of the blood vessels around the liver or it is in both lobes of the liver. So for the tumor to be cut out surgically, it has to be limited to one lobe, no spread outside the liver, and minimal, if any, invasion into the vessels around the liver, such as the portal vein. And the other main reason, if the liver is very cirrhotic, there is a lot of scarring tissue there. So that's the case where we try to look for liver transplant options if the tumors are small enough. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Harding. Um, will getting hepatitis B vaccine help prevent liver cancer? Can you still get liver cancer if you have the hepatitis B vaccine? Do you want me to repeat the question? Um, So um, perhaps, um, Dr. Kassab, if you could address this question, will getting the hepatitis B vaccine help prevent liver cancer? Can you still get liver cancer if you have the hepatitis B vaccine? Yes, so um, for those patients who have had a hepatitis B vaccine, there are a lot of studies that showed a direct correlation between vaccination and lower liver cancer. Is Dr. Harding back? Yes, I just sorry, my phone oh, dropped. Oh, so I, I, okay. I understand. So, um, you know, I, I think maybe you've already answered the question, but, um, um, you know, obviously the risk factor for liver cancer is chronic um, inflammation of the liver. That's a main risk factor. We see, you know, liver cancer development in normal liver and a small percentage of people but in most cases, it's due to some chronic fibro-inflammatory condition of the liver. Um, and um, you know, prevention of hepatitis B through vaccination 
um, is certainly encouraged. Um, control of active hepatitis B, um, um, if one has active hepatitis B, is also encouraged and reasonable. And there are studies to suggest that better control of viremia may improve outcomes. Um, and I hope that answers the question. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. And um, a question from Ms. Bearden. Are there foods that can help with treating liver cancer? Well, there's not um, a magic food that can help with treating liver cancer. It really boils down to your unique situation. Um, depending on um, any side effects that you're experiencing, there might be some modifications to the diet. Um, increased protein is a very common um, uh, intervention that we see with our patients with liver cancer and um, in a need that, that does um, increase in, in helping, um, you know, getting enough protein in. Caloric needs can also increase um, just depending on um, what your what your unique needs are, but it's very individualized. And so I know there's a lot of information on the internet, um, a lot of information about supplements to like cleanse your liver, and there's liver cleanses. Please do not do any of those. Um, they are not recommended, and um, your safety's first. And so you need to talk with your healthcare team um, just about any special needs that are unique to you. Excellent. Thank you. And um question uh, for Dr. Kassab. Um, with so many different types of ablation therapy, how do I know which is the best for me? Do I need a second opinion? If you could address this in a general way. Yeah, this is a good question as well. So in general, it depends on two main factors. The location, so if it is, for example, close to a surface, we worry about, you know, the heat causing uh, the tumor to rupture. If it is close to a big vessel, you know, it's hard to do the required high temperature. So it's really a technical issue that are always associated with this decision-making, whether we do heat ablation or cryo, which is the freezing or the alcohol. But if the patient is not, you know, very comfortable with any decision-making, we always, every physician, we always encourage patients to get a second opinion to be very comfortable. Thank you. Um, and uh, another question for um, Dr. Harding, can you enter a clinical trial at any time, or does it have to be before, during, or after starting my cancer treatment? Thank you very much. So um, all clinical trials have very specific entry criteria uh, to assure both patients are safe and that, you know, we're asking and answering the correct clinical question. And so um, uh, for non-therapeutic clinical trials, often those can be entered at any time because it's about using, you know, patient samples and biospecimens to understand disease. For therapeutic clinical trials, um, these often have to be punctuated and started at very specific time points. So as an example, you know, many studies are looking at, you know, like what's the best systemic therapy or medicinal therapy for someone that's never been treated before uh, with a systemic treatment. So you have to be what's called treatment naive. So if you've already started a systemic treatment, you may not be eligible for that specific study. 
Um, and so it really depends on, you know, where you are in your disease core and what is available at that time. So, it, it you know, simply answered, yes, I mean, uh, clinical trials, you know, do have set criteria that may limit access if you've already started on a specific systemic treatment or completed an embolization-based treatment. But you'd have to ask your doctor to know for certain. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and this is a question for Dr. Kassab. I was recently diagnosed with liver cancer and need a liver transplant. What can I do to help myself while well, in the liver transplant waiting list? Well, on the on liver transplant waiting list. Yeah, the most critical step is really to keep close contact with the transplant team because they have to finish very hectic, very specific testing to make sure that your body is going to be able to handle it. Also, in the same time, uh, concomitantly, it's very important to follow up with your oncologist because there are treatments to be done while waiting. We call it bridging therapy to transplant. So the fact that you're going to get listed is great. However, we always do treat those tumors while waiting for the liver transplant to happen because usually it takes time. Average is about a year, a year and a half, sometimes even longer. Excellent. Thank you. Another question for actually, um, actually perhaps for all of you, but I'll start with Diana. Are there foods that help prevent liver cancer? No, there's not a, a food that will help prevent liver cancer, but what we know is um, a plant-based diet is recommended to reduce um, inflammatory processes. And in overall health, in general health, that's what's recommended, and it's about um, – really what's on your plate. About three quarters of the plate come from a plant-based food, and the last um, portion of that, um, that last fourth, coming from a lean protein. And um, there's some fabulous information on the American Institute for Cancer Research website um, about ways to reduce your risk of cancer with diet and lifestyle. And um, they have some fabulous recipes that are free and they're accessible, um, and it, it's a very user-friendly website. So I think that's um, a great place to go to get um, some, some great information on the anti-inflammatory plant-based diet. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. And we'll be sure to um, – any reference that anyone uh, during this call provides to you, we will provide that. You'll be getting a Survey Monkey evaluation um, probably by tomorrow, um, and um, it will have um, some – additional questions for you to answer, but it will also have all the resources we mentioned on the program and even some that we may not have mentioned but we think would be of value too. So so stay tuned. You'll be getting more, more things to help you as well, but that's excellent. We'll be sure to have that resource in there as well. So thank you. Um, and then here's a question. Um, a question that was earlier. Let me just... Um, well, I'll take this one. Um, Dr. Um, Kassab, um, I was diagnosed with chronic HPV. Should I get tested for liver cancer? Yes. So patients with chronic hepatitis B, they uh, need to follow up with their hepatologist, and these are the patients who would be under screening program. Most of them will qualify to be under screening program by hepatologist, which is once every six months to have an ultrasound done and tumor marker alpha fetoprotein. But it's very critical for them to follow closely with their hepatologist because they also benefit from treating their hepatitis B their current guidelines. Oh, excellent. Okay, so that's a really good question, and thank you for that answer. So that's really helpful. I hope that helps our participant here. 
Um, and then this question for Dr. Um, Harding, how should I prepare for liver surgery? Uh, so um, I, I think that is a great question. That is best handled by, you know, speaking with the surgeon directly. Uh, when, you know, speaking with a surgeon about liver surgery, you should, you know, go through all of the risks, the benefits, the expected complications, and really clear with them, you know, what is appropriate and required prior to liver surgery. Um, they're the ones that would ultimately adjudicate that. And so it's a great question, but really those questions I would specifically ask the surgeon and the team, what are my key requirements and what do I need to do? Um, in general, um, things that maintain an active and healthy lifestyle are good to do prior to surgery, but you may need additional like testing, seeing a primary care doctor or cardiologist depending on the symptom, uh, the, the um, uh, the the surgery and, and your other medical history. So really a clear question to ask the surgeon. Excellent. These have been wonderful questions. I, I These are really, um, I have to say, this today's uh, participants have been really outstanding. I'm going to now ask, um, oh, I mean, there's one more question. Um, um, I'll ask Dr. Kassab, um, what are some chemicals that cause liver cancer? Yes, so it's again, I uh, echo your uh, thought, Carolyn and, and James, good question. So in general, um, the most reported chemical that has been associated with liver cancer is called aflatoxin. So uh, this is something that you could find on, you know, stored um, grains, um, rice and others, and, and it's like a white powder so this is something that is closely linked to um, liver cancer development called the aflatoxin. So you really need to look into that and look at your local um, um, reporting of any um, aflatoxin in the community. Most of the countries now monitor that and try to avoid this setting. In addition to that, um, there have been also some reports about patients who work in chemical plants, and like any other cancer, there is always this association, so people really should um, um, wear um, protective gears and stuff like that if they are handling any of those chemicals, um, kerosene gas or any chemicals if they work in chemical plants or um, um, chemical industries. So these things are important to, to avoid. Aflatoxin is a food particle, but there are some other chemicals associated with that, um, and the precautions, general precautions are always the best to uh, follow in these cases um, to avoid development of HCC or liver cancer. Excellent. And uh, as we conclude today, I think it would be helpful for everybody to just um, provide a takeaway from your perspective of what you'd like people to take away from um, what you covered today. So I'm going to start with Dr. Kassab, if you'd just like to kind of give people just a takeaway point that they could take with them. Um, um, I think that's sure. just helpful to people. <laughs> that's a good idea. So um, I would say um, never give up. You know, there is always, you know, hope. And uh, uh, five years ago, we only had one drug and was very modest activity. And look at us now, five years later, we're talking about multiple lines of therapies, front and second and third line. So I want patients and their families to always keep their hopes up. And I always tell my patients, let's hope for the best and get ready for the worst, like anything else in life. There is always advances happening when it comes to systemic therapy, localized therapies. 
So we really have to keep up um, this uh, attitude and this hope, which can also mean that the patients are going to have better um, 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 uh, nutrition system, better activity level. All of these things really translate into better immunity. And uh, this is always something that I've noticed in my clinic. Patients with the best hope and attitude along with their families, they always tend to do better. Excellent. Thank you. And, uh, And Dr. Harding? Yeah, I agree with what uh, Dr. Kassab has said, and I'd also kind of add to that it, it does take a village. I didn't say that, of course, uh, but um, uh, it really requires a lot of collaboration between patients and their doctors um, um, and families to kind of come up with the, you know, the best treatment plan um, and to achieve, I think, the best outcomes. Um, it also requires collaboration of, you know, doctors that are interested in this disease and scientists to advance the field forward. And so, um, you know, I think the uh, the big point for me is, you know, just work closely with your doctor and understand that they're working with a number of people, researchers, um, as well as surgeons, interventional radiologists, to try to provide you with the best possible outcome. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. And Ms. Bearden? Um, I'd say communication. Communicate with your healthcare team. Don't let things just go by like and feel like it's not a big deal. When you notice a change and, you know, um, it's, it's, it, you're in the middle of treatment and you notice something different, let the team know as soon as possible. Um, the sooner they know, the sooner they can help you. And make sure you know all the members of your healthcare team. Um, oftentimes, you're not necessarily face-to-face with each one of them at every visit, but know how to access them. There's a lot of support with your healthcare team, um, and we all want to be able to help support you. So please, um, please request us, request to talk to us, and um, just communicate with your, with your team as soon as possible with, with new changes or issues. Excellent. And I want to thank our speakers. You've all been wonderful. And I, I just, it's an amazing call to you. We could go on for another hour. There are many more questions, but I said that this program would be an hour program. So we want to try to keep to that. Um, in concluding, I would not want anyone to leave this call feeling that you're alone. I would not want you to think that um, um, that there are no resources for your help. I think all of us have said throughout the call that your healthcare team consists of so many different people, sometimes people you've never met. There are um, many different disciplines on your team, also people who have access to resources for you, financial resources, support resources, medical resources, um, just a lot of things that can be helpful to you. Um, you also have, of course, you can contact Cancer Care, and there are many cancer organizations out there. Specific organizations for liver cancer will give you that resource as well. So there are a lot of organizations out that you can contact for help, and it's free. So you might as well take advantage of them because they're there for you. And your hospital also may have services that you just don't realize are there for you. So definitely let your healthcare team know what is troubling you. It's very important um, in today's world. I want to thank you all very much for your participation today and for being such a great group of participants with such great questions. And I want to thank our speakers again as well, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.